Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us here for Harnessing Your Wealth. I'm Billy Peterson, your host, and I'm excited to bring in a new guest for today, Pierre Amistoy, who is joining us from New Mexico, correct? Yes, Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for joining us today, Pierre. No problem. I appreciate the, the offer. Yeah, we're excited to have you. You you and your wife, Leslie, have been big names in horse racing for many years, so you bring kind of a unique perspective to our listeners a lot of listeners out there have some background in horse racing. Those of you who don't, don't feel alienated because we want you to pick up some nice information from this too and something that will hold your interest. So Pierre has a a lot of background in business and being a very successful business owner. And that's one of the themes about our show is becoming successful in life and harnessing your wealth, of course, and dealing with managing money, building your net worth, and then, of course, doing the things that you enjoy doing. So let's start with Pierre's story, and, and let's go back in time, Pierre. If you'll tell us a little bit about your story uh, of your life and how you became a business owner and then how you got involved in horse racing. Uh, when I was growing up in Albuquerque, my dad had a drywall business here in town, a sizable business, did a lot of work in town. And so I learned the drywall business uh, growing up, not to the extent that uh, I could run a business, but I was around it all the time. And then graduating from high school, I had a couple offers to go play baseball at a couple of schools here in New Mexico, but uh, they weren't really where I wanted to go. And I graduated early, so I was small. And uh, so I told my dad I was going to wait a year and then maybe go to school the following year. Well, uh, that next Monday morning, he kicked me out of bed and said, we're going to work then. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up at the shop and I learned to be a taper finisher did that for three or four years, got good at it. And then about 1975, my dad decided to sell the drywall business and, and asked me if I wanted it. And I said, no, I'm, I'm ready to move on too. So he sold it and uh, he went down to Los Lunas and bought him some feed stores. And I helped him run those feed stores for about two, three, four years. And then uh, just coincidentally, my brothers had been into the racetrack and one was a trainer and they got to be friends with a couple of jockeys. And uh, I was kind of in limbo after he sold the feed stores. Uh, he was semi-retired and I was not doing anything. So they invited me to be a jock agent. So I went to Santa Fe Downs as a jockey agent in about 1976 or 77 and uh, enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun, made good money. If in those days, I was making really good money compared to what the drywallers, construction workers were making. So hmm. I was single and having a, a good time. And then in 1988, I met Leslie, who was one of the first uh, women trainers in the country. I met her at Turf Paradise. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And we started dating back then. And then we ran horses. She ran horses. I, and I did that for about 12 years, being an agent. And then in 88, just my, my dad were at dinner one night. And I just said, Dad, let's get back into drywall. And, and you uh, decided to move right back in, did it? Did yeah, it well, we were, we, Les and I wanted to start a family. We didn't want to keep moving every three or four months from track to track. And uh, so he said, all right, Pierre, I said, I'll show you how to make money, if, but you go do the work. And I said, I'm ready. So, uh, so let's say, and at that time, if you remember, Albuquerque opened up a, a spring meet. And so we didn't have to go to Turf Paradise. 
And mm-hmm. so we stayed in town and we opened up the business. And I don't know if it was just a luck of timing or what, but our businesses grew, uh, just grew every year, just keep growing. Albuquerque was growing. And we got to a point where we were doing 2,000 drywalls. And in 1996, I got into stucco. We were doing 2,000 stucco jobs a year. Wow. That, we had 500 employees at that time. We were doing a lot of work through town in Albuquerque, apartments, commercial houses. We got big, very successful. And uh, my dad, um, after he'd made, we'd made plenty of money. He, he retired then and he started going back to France. That's where he was from and visiting his family every year. And so I took over the business mainly and ran it. And then, uh, then he passed away in 2004. And uh, of course we did a, a buy sell with my mom. So then I owned all the, all the business. And uh, while we were successful in the, in the drywall and stucco business, with the extra money we had that we liked, we always wanted horses. We always liked horses. And uh, when I was a kid, my dad dabbled in them, but never got really big into it. So uh, one year he just said, you know what, let's just go buy what we want. It's just, you know, don't worry about what it costs. Let's go buy a good horse. So we went that year, it was 2000 or, or 1998, I think. And we bought a little horse, only paid 27000 for him. I had Fred Danley had him for us. And he got into the Kentucky Derby. I mean, he into the All-American for charity. Oh, wow. Yeah, with a little little cheap horse we bought. So uh, that was fun. And uh, and then we just kept growing from there. Then 2002, we had a champion two-year-old colt named First the Flash. Quarter horse that won the rainbow for charity. It was a good colt. And um, our business was still going strong. Actually, we started doing some land development at that time. And now I'm, I'm kind of even bigger into land development than I am drywall now. No, wow. So my son, my youngest son, Adam, has now come into the business. And he's managing the day-to-day drywall and stucco business. He's doing the bidding and the collecting and the payrolls, and he's taking care of everything. So it turns me loose to do land development. So now I got, I don't know, five or six land developments going here in Albuquerque, and I'm building lots for the builders we work for. And okay. how I got in that, how I got in that was in 2007 and eight. Remember the mortgage bust? Yep. Yep. Remember all the housing went down? Well, we went from doing 2,000 houses to doing 200 houses. So that, that business model uh, kind of, Gave, gave way, right? So I had to flip my whole business into a commercial application. We went doing schools. We were building um, administration buildings, science and math labs, apartments. And we just flipped our whole our whole business into a commercial uh, brand of work till the houses came back. And then we got back into housing again. But uh, Adam, my son, had graduated from college with a bunch of degrees and very smart kid. And he picked up right away on the drywall stucco and he managed it you know, really good now. So, uh, so when it got slow, when we were already doing a couple hundred houses, I said, well, I gotta, I gotta touch those houses more. I, so I started painting. So I was doing stucco, drywall and paint. And then I kept thinking about, I gotta do more than I gotta keep this thing going. So, uh, I started saying, well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll develop lots. And then I'll tell the builder, you want to buy my lot? You can have the lot for this price, but I do the drywall and the stucco. I kind of kicked the competition away by doing the lots. And it worked great. Uh, so I was started building lots. I built uh, 200 lots at one subdivision, 350 in another. So, well, that guaranteed me 500 houses for drywall. Yeah, so stuff. you have to find the land and then get get it developed. Obviously, that's capital intensive. You have to have some money behind you or, or good bank partners, I guess. Both. both. I had both. I had some cash that had we had generated through the years of being big as, as big uh, contractors. But... So we used some of that capital to invest and buy the land. And then if, and everything I did, I had pre-sold. 
the national builders here can they can write sizable checks when it comes down to buying land. So the banks were comfortable with me uh, buying the land, owning it, and then they would uh, finance the construction of the lots. And then the builders would take them down. And mm-hmm. when I sold a lot, one condition was I got to do the drywall and stucco. So I was mainly trying to make my drywall and stucco survive and keep that business going because that's our core. That's that's what we do uh, by doing by doing the lot. So that grew. I just started. I was making as much or more money doing the land development than I was doing drywall and stucco. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I'm really heavy into that now. You know, and I don't. I haven't saved like right now. I don't have a lot of cash. When I say a lot of cash, you know, I. I I got plenty of cash, but not uh, a lot because I put in, I put, I don't think, I don't manage my cash well just sitting in the bank. It, it just sits, right? So I, I usually buy real estate with it. Either I'll buy an apartment project, I'll buy land, I'll develop land. I want it working instead of sitting. Yeah. So most of my wealth is in properties and in land. Uh, and I just feel comfortable because I understand land. I know it. So uh, I can manage it. I can manage the ups and the downs of it. You know, when things are down, I buy. When things go up, I sell. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just kind of work in that. And it's been working for me for 10 or 15 years real well. So that's kind of what we do in the drywall, stucco, and land development business. But Leslie and, and I have always been into horses, right? Because she was a horse trainer. So it was something. And, and Kate, listen to this. This is something that she and I do together, right? Mm-hmm. And it keeps us close. It's not that I come home every night. And uh, we just watch TV and don't speak to one another. We talk horses. We go look at colts. We go to sales. We sell horses. We race horses. So being able to do it together kept us closer for these 40-something years we've been married. And uh, for us, it's worked out really good, having the same same interests, same background, and some of the same interests. Well, that's good to know. My fiance is uh, big into horses as well, so I made sure that that was one of the contingencies there <laughs> he has those qualities already pierre we we like where he's going with that and there yeah she's a great girl <laughs> good, yeah good. coincidentally Cade played baseball too and he went to a school in new mexico to play of course that's when we had the shutdown of the entire country so he didn't even get to play any games and it was all over oh gosh yeah. uh, i was up in las vegas new mexico that new mexico highlands, highlands. yeah 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 so. that was one of the offers i got was from highland back in that was in 72 I was wondering if that was one of the schools. Yeah, oh, I lived wow. there for about nine months. Did so, you? Yeah. 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 You didn't realize uh, that's where they filmed uh, Breaking Bad and <laughs> in Albuquerque. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. Albuquerque and, every, and a lot of it in Las Vegas. There's so. another show there in Vegas. Uh, was it Longmire or something? Yep. Right oh, there in Las yeah. Vegas. The yeah. yeah. I think it yeah. was. Yeah. The was a kind of a hotbed for movies here. You know, we got some big, big studios here. Uh, in uh, Albuquerque, uh, that shoot a lot of film, a lot of lot of movies and uh, television shows here. Hmm. It's interesting uh, the dynamics of different parts of the country. And I, I enjoyed riding back in those days. Albuquerque had traveled that circuit, as you know, and and I had a lot of fun doing that. Met a lot of people. That's the biggest part of my clients today. As you probably are well aware, that horse Porsche people, and I really enjoy this down to earth good good people to work with and and we're glad to have you on the show today to talk about your background so i want to i'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that if you don't mind um what do you think are the biggest risks to the construction industry presently with regards to us trying uh, us being the government the federal reserve trying to tamp 
inflation down, raising rates so quickly, and most likely not done yet. Well, it was it's funny you, you were talking about that. I was talking to my, I have a, a, an attorney that uh, in my land developments, we do a land development uh, with, within those developments, there's some what we call reimbursables that you can pick up. Uh, we can do a, a public improvement district. And so all these infrastructure items we put into the, into the ground to build these lots, we can't get it all back from selling the lot. We can't get enough money for the lot to make any money with it. So the reimbursables, which is a the public improvement district and a TID is a tax increment uh, district. Those two items are reimbursed so we can get back for all the offsites we have to bring in. Like this one I'm doing right now called Los Diamantes. It was, we had to spend $12.5 million to bring a road to the site. And that road is something that we could get reimbursed from, from the state. It's called a TID and, and we get a portion of the grocery streets tax. Uh, in this district that we built this subdivision in. It's going to take some time, but we'll, we'll get that back with time. So we had to spend like over $12 million to get the road to the site. And then um, I had to go work with the public schools because they had a piece of property nearby me uh, and I needed something to bring people to the area. It was kind of an undeveloped area. It was really close to Albuquerque. It was a great site, but there was no activity there. So I went and I politicked a little bit and got with the uh, Rio Rancho board of directors for schools. And uh, I convinced them to move this a brand new elementary school right next to my subdivision. So they would do it. Uh, they've been wanting to do it, but they couldn't do it because they had no facilities, they had no infrastructure. So I brought the infrastructure to them. They did the school, they built the school. And that was just a huge push for my development with people with families wanting to come to that area because of how I have a brand new state-of-the-art elementary school. So working with government, it was a private-public partnership we did together to get this site open. And it's 500 uh, lots. I built all the lots now. We've probably sold 350 of them. Uh, there's 75 acres of commercial, and I've sold uh, probably 15 or 18 acres of that. So that, that side of the project starting to move now. But the interest rates have been terrible for houses, as, as you could imagine. The mortgage companies are going up. Uh, we're getting a little bit better at it. I think the the builders are, are helping these home buyers buy down mortgage rates a little bit. Um, I think they're offering them some appliances with the homes to, to try to save cash for the homeowner so they can put a down payment on and buy a home. But, you know, it's funny that prices keep going up and interest rates go up, and I hope it levels off now so we can go get adjusted to it. But the demand in Albuquerque and in Rio Rancho is still huge. We're mm. so short of inventory. And the demand for lots from the builders, for me, have never been stronger. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of money in the economy right now. And it seems that uh, demand hasn't weakened. And so, you know, not to rain on parades or anything like that. I just kind of look in, as a realist that I, I, too, hope that the economy doesn't need to have a hard landing. And we call it hard landing or soft landing or basically a glide path. And so one of those three scenarios are going to play out. And I think the hard, the higher they raise rates, the more risk we have of a hard landing because there needs to be something that gives or these prices won't cool off. Um, it just seems that the economy cannot sustain this for, for very long. If you go back to the 70s when we had Paul Borker, 70s and 80s, and, and he really had to tamp inflation and just kick it in the head by 
raising rates and not caring what the economy did. He did not care. All he cared about was getting prices back down and inflation arrested and removed from the economy. So, you know, time will tell. Well, I th- and I think you're right when you say we need a soft landing. We need to get, we need to adjust to what we have now. You know, we're, I think prime is eight and a quarter at this point. If, if we keep raising rates, then we'll never find a place to land. We won't be able to to solidify. I, I can't do any more land deals if the if the rates keep going up, right? Because the lots get to be too much. Mm-hmm. Then the builders, I can't pay you that much money for that lot here. Well, then I've got to stop. This is supposed to slow down the economy, not stop it. Mm-hmm. So I've hopefully leveled out. I mean, the last reports I hear is they may go up another quarter or two the next couple of quarters. It might go up 0.25, but you know we, we've got to slow that down. We can, I mean, we cannot keep raising rates and expect this economy to 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 stay alive. I mean, we, yeah. we can't stop it. If uh, so, so I'm I'm still optimistic in this market. We're still a lack of inventory here for home buyers, so that's still strong. It's just uh, how do we maneuver ourselves around these interest rates? But yeah, that's the big question mark we're all watching is. for. Yeah. It is. Um, w- w- go ahead and get into the horse racing if you don't mind. Okay. Um, I want to well, ask you good. some things about you know just how you got into it so in a, such a good way and were you always successful right from the start or did were there was there a period of frustration or having to kind of work through some things? Well, there's always frustration, and I think in any <laughs> business you're in, and the horse business, as we know, it's. It's not like you can go change a tire and fix that car and run again. You, you know, if you hurt a horse, you hurt your horse, right? So yeah. uh, as Le- when Leslie being a trainer uh, when she was young, she was a national champion hunter-jumper when she was 17 years old. She was national champion. Oh, wow. So she's well, she was well-versed in horses. She trained and in the early 70s, mid-70s, all the way to, into the 80s. She won a lot of races. You know, I've been, been a jock agent. I was around the backside. I knew the, the secretaries. I knew that part of the game. She knew the training part of the game. So we were well-versed. Uh, and then racing got bad in New Mexico. So that's one of the reasons we stopped in 88 and got back into the construction. Cause if you remember, if you didn't win a fraternity, you didn't make any money in New Mexico. The purses were terrible, right? Yeah. So we stopped and, uh, but we liked it. And so we got into the drywall and then we were successful right off the bat. And, um, so she still had some clients that wanted to buy some horses in Kentucky. So we started going to Kentucky and buying horses for her clients. And as we went back there, you know, I had a little money, not, not a lot, but I had some money. So we started buying a couple for ourselves, but not to race. We buy weanlings to pinhook. Hmm. So we would buy her, her, her clients yearlings to race. And then we, in September, and we go back in November and buy weanlings to pinhook. And pinhooking means you buy them as a weanling, you raise them till they're a yearling and you sell them as a yearling. And what we liked about it was the pedigrees that you were buying couldn't get any worse. They could only get better. The confirmation, we were very strict on ourselves for confirmation and uh, soundness with the throats and the whole deal. And the horse didn't have to prove he could run a lick. All he had to do was show good. If he was raised right and he was still, confirmation was still good. We made enough money in four years, Leslie and I, we bought a farm in Kentucky cash. Wow. Yeah, wow. We liked, we did so well at it. We liked it and did it and did so good at it. We bought that farm cash. It was called Lobo Farm. And it was in Paris, Kentucky. And, uh, and at that time, we kind of got deeper into it. And we were pinhooking uh, weanlings to yearlings. We started pinhooking mares uh, that were in fold of the right horse. We'd fold them, rebreed them, flip the mare, keep the baby. So the baby, up at the end of the day, was almost free. And then, and then we'd sell it as yearlings. So we did really good for a lot of years there. 
Now, did you prep the babies and the and the yearlings yourself, or did you have did you use someone else to do that for you? No, we did it. We had it. We we I developed that farm. It was 270 acres. I developed it into a pristine, absolute top notch facility for broodmares and for yearlings. And we had our own facility, our own walkers, our own equisizers. We did our own prepping. We got to be, you know, for, for people from Albuquerque, right? We got to be a pretty good little farm. We got well-recognized. We sold a lot of nice horses. Uh, one year, 2009 or 10, uh, you know Mike Abraham. Remember Mike Abraham? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mike and I still do a lot of horse deals together. But we were at a sale one time. We had won uh, Breeders of the Year one year in New Mexico. And so we were back early because the Thoroughbred uh, Breeders and Owner Association have a party every year for, for the winners of the uh, the state breads. So we went early that year. We usually didn't go to the sales till the middle of the sales because the high dollar horses were out of our range. Anyway, we went early one year and I'm standing there watching these mares sell for two, three, four million dollars. And I see this little mare go by a real pretty little mare named Iris Cherry. And she was in full to Stormcat. And in those days, Stormcat was standing for 500,000 mm-hmm. if you could even get to it. So uh, we were deep in, into the horses that we were selling and buying a lot of horses. So I saw her go through the ring and she, and she uh, sold for 800,000. And I thought, wow, that's, and she was already a grade one producer. She had a daughter named Spun Sugar who was already a grade one racehorse. So I saw the lady come with a ticket over to this gentleman that I knew and he was signing the ticket. And I said, John, the guy named was John Sakura from Hillendale. I said, John, what, what is that Mary empty or what happened? That 800 grand. He goes, no, we're just, we're breaking up a partnership. And, and I said, well, who bought her? He said, I bought her. And uh, I said, well, you want to sell her? And he says, yeah. I said, what do you want for her? He said, I'll take a million dollars. I said, okay, I'm going to go check her and vet her. And if she's in full, everything's good. I'm going to, I'll buy her. He says, all right, you got a deal. So I walked back over to my wife who was standing with Mike. They're standing there watching horses go through. So I opened my book and I show it to Mike. I said, Mike, look at this mare right here. And I he looked at it and he goes, yeah, she just went through. And I go, yeah, I said, look, you got 15 seconds. I said, I'm going to buy this mare for a million dollars. You tell me if you're in or out. And is she, is she pregnant? I said, yeah. I said, we get to go vet her. And uh, he's kept looking at it. I don't know. And I said, five, four, three. <laughs> he goes, I'm in, I'm in. It's all right. You're in. So, we go down there and we vet her and sure enough, she's in fold. Everything looks good. So we get home, send him the money and uh, uh, take her to my farm. We fold her out. And in February, she has a Stormcat colt. Not, she had a pretty nice colt. Well, that same, that summer in May, her second foal, a full brother to the grade one winner, uh, Spun Sugar, his name is Daher. He wins the grade one cigar mile. Oh my gosh. And my phone starts ringing. And I got the sheiks calling me and the Irish are calling me and the blue bloods. Are, everybody's calling me, Mary, you got that, Mary? I said, I got her. And I had her fold the first year that Ghost Sapper stood. No. So the two grade ones winners she had were by Awesome Again. Well, Ghost Sapper was the best son ever by Awesome Again. Mm-hmm. And so we went to him and bred, bred to him. And uh, so in May, he has she has another grade one winner. Well, I called the sale company. All these guys are calling me to buy her, right? I said, well, hell, I'm just taking her to the sale. Let him bid on her. We put her in the sale, and she was the star of the sale. And uh, we ended up selling that mare for two point seven million, and uh, and we had all the guys on her. It was I got to meet the sheik from the Emirates. He came over and, and looked at the mare, and you know, got we got to visit with him and, and Maganier and those guys from Ireland. So we were playing at the at the highest level. At you know, that was funny. That morning I got up, I said, Leslie, today, right now, we're going to be on the top of the thoroughbred world. One day, today, we'll be the stars. She goes, No, <laughs> you're silly, fear. 
And we mm. did. We topped the sale and we made it to that to that sale that day. So man, we had a lot of success in racing. And uh, and then in New Mexico, you know, we're from here. We know everybody. We know the ropes around here. And and yeah, we've done. I can't even tell you how many stakes and fraternities and that we won through the years. This last year, from May to till the day we were going to the Kentucky Derby, we'd won 14 stakes races or fraternities mm. in that seven or eight month period. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode. But before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now, back to harnessing your wealth. Hmm. Oh, it no, is I, impressive. Yeah, we've watched you guys from afar and really been impressed with all the success you've had, both in New Mexico and all around the country. Well, we we decided. Uh, I I have a friend who's now a partner of mine. We do land deals together. So, if name Roger Beasley from Austin, sure, I know Roger. Roger and I had a he had a little old mare uh, in New Mexico, and they couldn't get her in full. And he said, and he had a friend that he and I have a mutual friend, and you probably know Miles. You know Miles Johnson? Yeah, Reed Oso all the time. Him and Dan Wimberly at Reed Oso all the time. Mm-hmm. So he says, Pure, you know, this friend Roger of mine has a soul mare, and we can't get her in full. Can you, do you mind taking her there to your place and let's get her in full for first moon flash? Who was my champion uh, stallion I had, court horse? I said, sure, bring her over. We breed her, and the first foal she has, his name is Freedom Flash. He won, he's made almost $500,000. Now he's an 870s champion, right? He won two or three stakes last year. And then she had a sister, a full sister the next year, who won three stakes in a row for us last year named Me Moon Flash. Right. Todd Fincher had him, right? Todd Fincher, yep. Todd mm-hmm. Fincher had her, and both of them actually. And we did good. And then just out of the blue, Roger calls me one day and he goes, Hey, Pierre. I go, What? He said, well, Let's go get us a couple good thoroughbreds. I think he says, You can pick them. God damn, you can pick them. Let's, let's go get a couple of good thoroughbreds and let's try to run it to Big Deal. I said, Well, if you want to do it, I'll do it. I'm fine. I said, I've never had anybody really want to do that. They like to stay home and do the, you know, no, no. He said, I want to try it. I want to go. All right. So Leslie looks it up and uh, the April sale in Ocala was coming up. So Leslie and I went and spent a week out there. We looked at hundreds of calls and watched them work and we did a whole deal. Well, as we were looking the very first day, we found this one colt. He was a practical joke colt and we liked him from the beginning. He just, he just fit everything we liked, what we were thought we were looking for, you know, to run around the ground. He had it. So we scoped him and we vetted him. We did all the X. We did everything. And we just liked this colt a lot. And we kept we kept coming back every day. We come back to that stall and looked at him again and make sure he didn't have any bad habits. And just and uh, we probably had a list of 10 or 12 that we liked. But he was in early. He was the 93 or 97 that day. So either we were going to buy him or, you know, or have to keep looking. But So he works and he works 10 and 1 and he looked like he was galloping. And I told Leslie, this son of a gun can run. He he's looking low, he's low, he's loping, he's going 10 and 1. And so I, I we said he, he we're gonna get him. So the day comes for the sale and it's he's early, so we're getting a little nervous. And we had pegged him for, you know, I said, we'll get him for 170, 180,000. We'll we'll nail it right there. So we get to the sale and shit, he got to 180,000 in like 15 seconds. <laughs> oh my God. I said, we're not gonna get close. This sucker's gonna bring. So Leslie gets disgusted and she walks back to the table and I'm sitting there going, no, 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 I'm not going to let him go. I want, I want this horse. So I bid again and then they bids again. And then I see the guy, he's across the ring. I can see him over there and he's fidgeting. He's starting to take, take his hat off and he's moving around and, but he's got the horse at 200 and I bid another. Anyway, he's at 215. 
but he's, I can tell he's stretched. He's, he's, he's done. Right. So I look at the, the deal and I said, look, I, said, I look at the spotter I said two 30. And he says two 30 and the dude walked away. He mm. walked away and I got the call. Mm. 230,000. And we liked everything about him, everything. So uh, Barry Iceman was the uh, consigner of the Colt. So the day after we bought him, we went to see the horse and everything. He went to talk to Barry for a while and give us some, you know, you always know that the, they know the insights of the horse, right? And he told mm-hmm. us, we left there so happy. He said, Pierre and Leslie, he said, I haven't even found the bottom of this Colt yet. He's a good long jump and stride, never made a mistake, never turned a hair. He said, if I was going to go to battle with the big boys, that's who I'd take with me. And he'd been, he'd had sold horses that win the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. He knows what a good horse is. Mm-hmm. So we left there very happy. And uh, then when Tim got him in California, it was the same thing. He said, Pierre, this horse, he, he doesn't miss a bite. He doesn't miss a gallop. He does, he's just click, click, click. And and uh, he turned out to be a phenomenal horse. He won the grade one San Anita, the grade two San Felipe. We got all the way within a day and a half of the Kentucky Derby. He was in at the draw. Uh, it's a funny, another little funny story. We're going to the draw, and Tim says, I said, what do you like? He said, I want to, we like the 10 hole. I said, I have this. So we're looking. Well, the very last horse out of the draw, out of the box, was him, and he was number 10. Hmm. So we're thinking, this is fitting. This is going to hit just right. Everything's going good. And then Thursday afternoon, we got to call that he had he had got a temperature. And the vet said, Pierre, we're going to have to treat him. He's he's going to get too sick. If You know, we got to treat him. So we treated him, and we had to scratch. But what a ride. What a ride no, we had with that well. goal last year mm. to get to that point. And by the way, just coincidentally, he's actually flying home today from Kentucky. He's 100% cured and well and fine and good. and His weight, everything's good. So he's flying back to Santa Anita today. And he'll be there this evening. And we'll start prepping him and try to point him towards the Breeders' Cup. Wow. That's awesome. What, what a story. Yeah. It was, now- uh, it was a fun ride, man. Even if it's just listen to this, when we bought him. So Leslie doesn't think we got him right. He's back. She couldn't see. So I walk over there and I act like I'm sad. And and I open my book and I drop the ticket on the table. She goes, you got him. You got him. I said, I got him. <laughs> and she says, oh, no, Pierre, was that a good move? And then we just hesitated for a minute. And she looked at me. She goes, practical move. That's his name. And she right. named it right there at the table. Oh, That's wow. his name. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That sounds like us when we're bidding on horses. Get get right to your limit in ten seconds, and then you're just like, ah, oh, maybe we'll go a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's fun though. I don't, you know, I don't know what, you know, to to run in what is an elite sport. I think, you know, you know, can we play football in the Super Bowl? No. Can we play? Well, you rode in the elite. You were at the top. You've been there. You know, you were as successful as any jockey's ever run in New Mexico or in the country, actually. So you know how it feels and how it is. And, you know, I can't play football or basketball or baseball or, or you know, or own those kind of teams. But you, I can own a racehorse and you can yeah. get to that, that elite level. You can get to that that excitement level, uh, whether it's a 5,000 claimer, 10,000 claimer or, or a stakes horse. They're all fun if they win. Yeah. And so we're trying to find that level of excitement that you've had, that you guys have had. Somehow that's very elusive for us. I tell people all the time, it was, it was really easy being a jockey. <laughs> and if it seems that way now in yeah. reality, uh, as an owner, you have to live it, breathe it. You're, yeah. you're looking and watching all the time and, and then uh, little things go wrong. You know, Todd sent me a book of the 100 
racing excuses <laughs> that your trainer will tell you. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and I think I've I've had sixty of them that have happened to me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. There's always a reason, right? That they didn't win today. Oh, it's, it's never the horse. It's always some somebody else, some situation. Yeah. The trainer. Let's try it one more time. Let's let's run yeah. farther. Let's run yeah. cheaper. Let's do something. <laughs> but, Get a different you know, jockey on there. That's true too. That's <laughs> you know one thing that we've learned though, and and you were, you probably were you were a jockey. You knew what barns were winners and you knew where you wanted to go participate. Right. And we've been through many, many trainers through the years. Uh, but you got to find a trainer. My, in my opinion, you got to find a trainer that, that works hard, that wants to work hard, that wants to be there and wants to get better. Right. If you have somebody that's just there because he wants a day money check, you're not going nowhere. He's just going to piddle around. You been taught as one of those guys. He's young, he's aggressive. He's a hard worker. Uh, I got a couple other trainers on the corridor side. Heath Taylor, hard worker, very successful. When Wes Giles, those kind of guys want to be there. They want to be the best, you know. And and if if when I give horses somebody, I want that attitude. I want that we want to win attitude instead of a complaining bitching. I you know they did this to me or that was wrong with. Well, you got to overcome that. I yep. think. Yeah. Just persevere and go through it and win. And and those guys are hard to find. Uh, but when you find one. Uh, you need to you need to hook up with them because they'll take you somewhere. Yeah, that's uh, that's half the battle, right? Getting the people that good horsemen um, that the, the horses actually enjoy the barn. You can tell a lot of times just a horse's attitude if they are uh, happy. You know, oh yeah, yeah, happy horse is a lot better competitor. You know, I I, we talk that all the time that a mental mentally sound horse horse that half the game is mental with these horses. Yeah, they all can run at some level, right? Pretty good, but they got to be mentally. Uh, prepared to not get frustrated uh, with whatever may happen on the racetrack. But, you know, Tim Yachtin, the horse, the trainer we have with practical move, he's very solid work. He's a hard worker. He's very knowledgeable. And, and he's very. He came detailed. from Baffert's barn, didn't he? Wasn't he yeah, an assistant he actually, to Baffert? He did. He was Baffert's uh, assistant when Baffert was running quarter horses in Los Alamitos. Right. And then he went and was uh, worked for Charlie Whittingham for 10 or 12 years. So those are two of the best uh, you could uh, train under, right, to learn. Mm -hmm. And Tim is very detail-oriented, and, you know, he doesn't have 150 or 300 horses. You know, he's got 30 or 40 head that's manageable. And I think we get very good uh, attention uh, with a barn of that size versus one that's uh, really big. But for sure, for sure. So with with regards to your where you're at right now, you're still going hard in the – industry that you know construction industry obviously um what you've told us about the business is still really really doing well your horse racing business is booming and, and things are going great there what goals do you guys have you and leslie have for yourself both personally and professionally um anything out there that you still want to attain or accomplish well no i think i think if i have these the, the, the developments i have now as if they finish out like I expect they will and be sold out, uh, we'll have way more than we need. We'll, we'll be fine. So we're really uh, now supporting our sons and making sure that they're set up, that they understand business and they understand work ethic and they understand perseverance and work. And they're good. I got two good boys. They're both smart. They got degrees that I never had or would have, but I'm trying to teach them the real world 
university, mm. right? Here's what happens on the ground. You yeah. know, what that book tells you is different than what you're going to find when you hit the ground, right? And they're learning that now. And one of the things that, and I had to learn it myself. When we got into business with my dad years ago, he was, I felt he was, I wouldn't say harsh, but he was stern with the employees, right? And I was more like wanting to be their buddies. He said, Pierre, don't do that. You won't be able to manage those people right if you're trying to manage friends. You need to manage employees, right? They work for you. They work with you. And you have to have a set separation, right? And, and it, but, it, but, it, but I learned it. I mean, I got stung a few times but by guys that were my employees, that were my friends, right? And, and then he said, I, I warned you. And so I've learned that lesson. Now, now these guys are young. You know, they're 29 and 33. They're young, and they want to be buddies with the guys. And it's okay to be friends, but not you, – you can't get – you can take that too far. So they're learning it now, and they're getting, they've got a couple little stings, you know, that a guy left or, you know, just bolted on them or whatever. So now they're learning to, to manage their people better, and they're, they're uh, um, learning that aspect of it and, and how to spend and, or not spend, but invest money into things that are going to get you return. Not only because you like it, but you have a plan when you spend that money, how you're going to get it back and how you're going to make profit with it, right? So I see that happening now. I see them making deals and doing stuff that, they're doing well at it. And so we're really focused on Leslie in our personal life is make sure they're good. I see. Make sure they're set up. And I have my first grandson. He'll be a, a year old uh, uh, next Wednesday. So his name is Rome. And now he's the prince of the family now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so that's that's what we do professionally. I think that I've got a great facility here. My, my businesses are good. I'm 68 years old. Do I want to dive into another venture, you know, that, that I have to learn? And, and no, I don't think so. I think, I think I've got plenty going with what I got. I know it. I understand it. I'm good at it. And the land deals are always easy. I think, I don't think I'll ever retire. I may retire from the drywall stucco because Adam's doing such a good job. He can, you know, he can take it, but the land deals, I, they excite me. I like find a piece of land, use your imagination, how you would develop it, how you would, how you would, you know, um, sell it, how you could profit from it. Those are fun. They're not hard. They're kind of fun to do, I think. And if you got a little money behind you and you got a couple of bankers that like you, they're not that difficult to do. Hmm. Uh, the main thing is just make sure you're having a buyer. I don't spec anything. I don't start it unless I have it sold. You've given us a lot to think about there. For the listeners today who are listening in, what would you? What advice would you give them quickly? I mean, we're, we're, we're wanting to um, um, get, wrap this up here in about 10 minutes, but what would you give them? as far as what it takes to be successful and what have you seen in those maybe people who fail in business? Well, um, one thing that we try to do was do something different or something better than your competitor. Um, easy as uh, maybe in, I'm doing drywall and, and drywall always was considered a dirty job, right? It was always dirty, mud on the floor, boxes everywhere, just a dirty job. Well, we've strived to make it a clean job. So we changed the perception of drywall to if you manage it right and you and you clean up after yourself every operation, at the end of the day, uh, you do what we call a bumping clean of the home. We left that house beautiful. We left it so clean, and, and but we got a little more money for it, right? So it didn't cost us anything, but we brought a service, we thought, to, to that industry that hadn't been there. And we had all the work we wanted. Anywhere I wanted to go bid work, I got it. Because we, we had that, that type of uh, mentality that 
It doesn't have to be dirty. Stucco was the same way. When stucco came to New Mexico, or, or I'm talking about synthetic stucco, nobody wanted to do it. They're all afraid with it. One of our largest builders came to me. I was doing his drywall. And I said, Pierre, my stucco guy is bucking me. I want to use synthetic, and he doesn't want to do it. He's just messing it up. He and, he and he said, come out to the job tomorrow morning. I want you to clean this up, and you can have my stucco. I picked up a 1,000 houses one in one customer because of the way I did my drywall. He liked the cleanliness. And he said, you bring that to the outside to do it on the stucco. You can have all my work. So I was the pioneer in Albuquerque to bring synthetic stucco to this market. And then when I did that, and KB Home, Pulte Home, DR, all of them called me. Pierre, we, we got to keep up. What, what, you're the guy. What do we do? I formulated my own finish. I formulated my own colors. I, I, I made a whole industry of just synthetic finishes in this, in this market. Hmm. And, and when I did that, then I had all the work I wanted, right? Because I brought something new to the table. I, my advice would be, think out of the box. If everybody does it ABC and it's okay, but you're just another guy, try to find D. Try to find that element that, that the other guy's not doing. Find something that makes you different and separates you from your competition, and they'll come to you. They'll come if you bring something they like or need. And if they might not even think they need it until you show them they need it. And then they go, oh, I need that. I like that. And you'll pick up all the work you can, all the work you can do. So that's what we try to do is be something different, something better. And my dad had a saying all the time. I said, just keep it simple, neat, and clean here. Keep it ne simple, neat, and clean, and you'll get all the work. Well, we were, we were, it, it still works today. What a formula. Keep it simple. I love it because that's the formula we follow here too. We don't, yeah. we don't chase a lot of things that are hard to understand. We like to, we like to do things that are easy to understand and easy to, to explain. Right. Right. So, so that's, that's what we did. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I want to, I want to ask one more question about practical move. He's still a stud, right? Yes, he is. I, I figured. So yeah. what's the ultimate plan for him? Do you retire him to stud someday, win some more big stakes races, sell him? Oh no, we, uh, actually we were there Kentucky week and I had three farms on the hook to buy him or make a deal on the stud rights, uh, breeding rights for the horse right, right there that week. And unfortunately that, you know, we had to scratch the horse. So we, we lost those opportunities temporarily. I'm still getting texts. I'm still getting calls from those farms about where is he at? How's he doing? They're still interested. So you know, one of them, I had two or three offers to buy into the horse or buy the horse just to buy him outright. But Roger and I didn't want to do that. We, <laughs> I told him, I've been my whole life to find this horse. Yeah. Right. So I said, no, we don't want to sell the horse. We're not going to sell his racing rights. We're going to keep that. Now, if somebody wants to buy his breeding rights, when I retire him, then we'll make a deal there. So I think our plan now is, hadn't changed. It's been delayed by two months, but we're going to take him back to California, hopefully get a good prep race in him and then go to the Breeders' Cup try to be successful there and see what opportunities come to us as far as selling his breeding rights. And if they don't come with enough, what I think is enough, then we'll maybe race him as a four-year-old uh, and then try to try to make him a multiple grade one winner. And, uh, you know, I think we get big money for him right now. But I, like, I want to, I want to see if I can get to hit a home run with him, see if I yeah, can get yeah. win another one or two big grade ones and then, and then make a bunch with him and, and then stand him. Yeah. In Kentucky and, 
I got a couple of fillies that, that we have here, and I told Leslie, she's going, well, who are we going to breed to next year? I said, just hang tight. We're going to breed to practical move. That's what <laughs> <laughs> you got our own stud now. Yeah, that's right. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, Pierre, thank you so much. What a what an honor and privilege it was for us to hear your stories. I mean, I know there are many more, and I hope we have time to to hear more as we go forward and see you at the races and at the sales. and, yeah. and Come back to you Reno, so we'll go have dinner and drinks. and all. I got stories. I got I'll 50 years worth of stories. You'd have a fall. I know. <laughs> yeah, you remind me of visiting. And you probably have some good ones too. I'd like to hear about your days. <laughs> I've got a the, few. the king around here, you know? Yeah, thank you. I, I have a few I could share as well. So, yeah, yeah you thank do. you so much for uh, everything that you've provided here, context around horse racing and around being a business owner, very successful one at that. And tell Leslie thanks for... Uh, you know, doing what she does and, and helping you guys get in, involved in this business. Cause I know she's the backstory right here. <laughs> she's not. Oh, she show, is. But. Yeah. She's got some great stories and, and she's at home and she takes care of all her mares and babies. She raises them and uh, she's, we raise some nice colts here. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. And I'll tell her you said hello. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much. So listeners, thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned next time. We're going to have a hall of fame jockey on the show and he's going to tell his story. And he's a guy that I, idolized as I was getting into the business myself. So you won't want to miss it again. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to harnessing your wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes, visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801 475 4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.